collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Collective Power. Today, I have absolute honor to have as our guest, anti-racism writer and educator, Sharon Hurley-Hall. Good morning, Sharon. Morning, Rita. Morning, everyone. So happy to be here. Thank you for choosing to be here with us all from Barbados, right? I feel like there's an extra little sun for us just from that. (laughs) It is a bright and sunny day. (laughs) Yeah. So I'll start you off with the question that we ask all of our guests, which is, tell us a story about you that has us understand you a little bit more as a person and why you care about the topics you write about. I was thinking about this and the story that I'm going to tell is about living in France. I spent a year living in France when I was around 21-ish. And while I was there, I really experienced overt racism consistently. It's not that I hadn't experienced it before, but it was consistent throughout the year. You know, people following me around and pointing and misunderstanding me and, you know, just looking at the color of my skin and making assumptions about me. And It was a hard year in many ways. No year is entirely hard. Of course, I had good experiences in that year. But at the end of that year, I had to make a decision about what kind of person I was going to be and how I was going to react to and process that experience. And my decision was that I didn't want to be the kind of person that perpetrated that on other people. And therefore, It has led me to wanting to fight racism where I see it, but also being open to helping guide others on their anti-racism journey. And you started the newsletter how long ago? I started the newsletter two years ago, which, you know, seems quite late in relation to the story that I just told. But... As a Black person, often living in white majority spaces, it's not always the time or, you know, you don't necessarily feel the safety to engage those issues in public. But, you know, I've been freelancing. And, you know, George Floyd was murdered. And I realized how tired I was of it all. And the newsletter actually came out of I would say the starting point was really an essay I wrote called I'm Tired of Racism, which I published on Medium. But within a couple of months, when I realized that content was getting suppressed on social media, I thought I need to go direct to the people that want this information. So I started the newsletter in August 2020. 
So it's been running for nearly two years now. So that's interesting. I've been hearing a lot about how social media censors controversial topics. Somehow only anti-racism, though. It doesn't seem to censor racism well, just anti-racism. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. That has definitely been been my experience and the experience of many activists that when you're calling out racism, you're much more likely to get your content suppressed. And this can happen in a lot of ways. I'm primarily active on LinkedIn, but also have had this experience on Instagram, on Facebook. So I've known people to talk about it on Twitter, which is that there are a couple of things that happen. One is shadow banning, which is basically algorithmic suppression of the content so that fewer people see it. So, you know, it looks like you've posted it and it's there and it's available to view, but in practice, very few people see it. And another thing that happens is that people that are trolling you might report your content as violating the terms of service, and then it gets taken down. And usually you can get it put back up, but, you know, you have to go through a whole process in order for that to happen. So in a sense, the people who are fighting racism are having to work doubly hard in order to get their content seen. It's very interesting, actually. A friend of mine, Ashanti Maya Martin, wrote an article for the New York Times called Blacked. Black LinkedIn is thriving. And it was about the rise of Black activists and activism on LinkedIn. And as part of that, the idea that sometimes this content was being suppressed. And, and you know, she's not the only one. Other people have written about it since. I actually, at one stage, started collecting a list of all the different posts that had been suppressed in some way. And um, it got to be quite a long list. And I'm not the only one doing it. You know, there's definitely, some of it is automatic, I think. Some of it is you talk about certain words, you mention certain words, and somehow the algorithms flag them. So you'll often see people doing versions of the word, like YT for white, or, you know, putting a a period in the middle of the word black so that the algorithms don't immediately pick it up, right? And so you find yourself having to do double and triple work and workarounds in order to fight this algorithmic suppression and also to get your content back out there if the, the, you know, the trolls and haters have managed to get it banned. Yeah, I've reported so many people on Facebook and somehow their stuff never gets removed. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe one time, I think I probably reported people about 10 times and maybe one time it was successful. And most of the time is like, we don't see any concerns with this content. And I'm like, but then how is see, it that some are getting over-policed and under-policed, right? Just like everywhere else in our society, right? So the, yeah. we're biased. And then the, with the algorithms we create are biased. Surprise, and, you surprise. know, those platforms thrive on attention. And, you know, mm-hmm. trolls get attention. Yeah. So your article, it strikes me that it has the same title of the book that is coming out soon. Right? I'm tired of racism. It does. So, tell me a little bit about that. So the book has come out of publishing the newsletter. I can't remember who said it, but they said, you know, it would be great if we could have some of these articles in one place, (laughs) right? And I thought, okay, book idea. I'll collect them in a book. And I actually have a few pieces that never made it into the newsletter as well. So, you know, for those who have been subscribing, I have included some pieces that they will not have seen. 
And it's an interesting process, taking something that was done for a newsletter and turning it into a book. But I'm excited about it. It's going to be out sometime in the next couple of months. And it's got, I don't know, 20-something pieces related to different aspects of racism. And one of the things that I do in the book and in the newsletter is I talk about the global experience of racism. Because, as you said, I'm in Barbados now. I spent a lot of time in the Caribbean as a child. I grew up here. Uh, I was born in England. I returned to England to live as an adult, and I stayed there for 15 years. I lived in France for a year. I visited the U.S. many times. And there are a lot of commonalities in the way that racism happens. You know, we often think that what we're going through in our particular area is the only example of this. But in fact, you know, white supremacy never sleeps and, it, and it's global. <laughs> and so what's, what's the vision you're carrying for the world as you do this, right? Like, I think often people who know those of us who have been were doing anti-racism work for some time, that we're all carrying a tremendous amount of hope, although we often talk about what everything, everything that's wrong. So I'm just curious, what's the, the vision you're standing in for our world? Well, there are two aspects of it. One is that I want to promote allyship as something that's active. You know, people like yourself and people that realize the wrongs of racism to band together and fight it. And, you know, of course, I have the hope that one day this is going to end and it's going to be a more equal and equitable world for everyone, although I'm not sure I'll see that in my lifetime. In fact, I've, I've been working with a colleague, Leah Jovi Ford on something called Diverse Leaders Group. And part of the mission there is to encourage and empower people to take the lead in fighting racism in their different areas. And, you know, also to spread out to other areas of diversity eventually as well. But we're starting with the anti-racism piece. And so, you know, that I think is, you know, collective action and people being willing to step up and be a little uncomfortable in the process is what's needed in order to get to this utopian vision of a world where you know, racism no longer exists. So active allyship as opposed to? Performative allyship as opposed to, you know, posting black squares on social media does nothing, right? Liking a post that's posted by an activist is great, but then what are you doing with the information? How are you using that information to have conversations with people? And that's one of the things that I do in my newsletter. I try to encourage people to take action. And sometimes taking action is about raising your own awareness, but sometimes it's about actually taking what you've learned and going out and having a conversation. So the thing that I find most delightful is when people respond to the newsletters, they sometimes do and say, oh, I discussed this with my family. I discussed this with my colleagues. We had a really, you know, wide ranging and enlightening discussion. And we've decided that we're going to take action in this particular way. And then I feel like the newsletter is doing what it's meant to. And that's what I also hope the book will do. For those who may not want to get daily emails, but still want to have access to the content, you know? Yeah. One of the reasons I was excited for this conversation today is that I think one of the 
uniquenesses I bring to my analysis of power and systems is racism is that I've lived in a lot of different places in the world, and you have too. Mm-hmm. Although we've lived in different places. I think we cross at a couple of intersections, like US and UK, maybe. And uh, my knowledge of the Caribbean is extremely shallow, right? I spent a couple of weeks in Cuba and a, and a week in Dominican Republic at some point, mainly for vacation. So that's not a lived experience the way you're, li- you're in lived experiences. And I'm not Black, of course. So, but one of the things that uh, strikes me a lot in the organizing spaces, when we try to do spaces that are both American and European, so intercontinental, mm-hmm. not that they can't be African or Asian as well, but when we're like organizing in spaces that are intercontinental and Americans and Europeans are the ones that show up most, what I notice is that Europeans often come to the table with the lens of racism is that American stuff, right? Like, it's not our thing. It's your thing. And you see it everywhere because it's your problem that you haven't gotten over because you guys haven't gotten over slavery. Right. And there's this undertone in the conversations that make it really hard to engage. And so I want to go into that conversation a little bit and hear, like, I have some theories around how that happened. I know for African-Americans, it's extremely ironic because they're like, what? Europeans created the concept of race. Exactly. And race. Like, where, where do we get it from? <laughs> talking about. Oh my god. Um, I have some theories about that which I'm open to offer, but I'd love to hear kind of what's been your experience in that regard. Well, well as you said, you know, the Europeans have the original sin and they exported it everywhere. They took it to all the colonial spaces, all the places that they colonized, all the places that they pillaged. So there are aspects of racism everywhere you go. You know, I live in a black majority country. But the polarization between the white population who, you know, are the descendants of plantation owners and colonizers and the black population who are the descendants of the enslaved still exists, you know. And there's a way in which, and I can speak to this in relation to the UK, there's this idea that, you know, slavery was a bad thing, but we did a good thing and we ended it. So we all should just, you know, be grateful and shut up about it. And let's focus on the good part where we ended it and not about the centuries of oppression before that. Right. Wait, wait, I, I want to tell you the Italian version of that. Yeah. Yeah. We occupied Africa, but we really weren't that good at it. And we weren't really the big colonizers. So if you guys could just get over it, we weren't the real ones. You should take it out <laughs> on the French, the Spanish and the Portuguese. Yeah, yeah. But you know, the truth the truth is that all the Europeans did it. The British were, were very good at it, but they weren't the only ones. You know, the, the Dutch did some horrific things, the Belgians did some horrific things, the French, yeah. the Spanish, the Portuguese, all the major, you know, the Italians, all the major European. I mean, Christopher Columbus, for goodness sake, right? Yeah, and Italians <laughs> you know? also, I would argue, you know, the whole fascist thing of Mussolini and the World War II was by Italians having an inferiority complex because while we weren't good at it, we wanted to be good at it, right? And so yeah. all the civil war in Somalia and even the, you know, what's happening in Ethiopia and Eritrea up till today, I mean, that's all the Italian legacy. Yeah. So, you know, all of this, it's very simplistic to say that, you know, racism is an American thing. You know, it's very interesting to me. One of the, the facts that came out in something that I was reading Right. So the, the Brits came to Barbados, which was their so-called jewel in the crown at the time, 
they came up with their slave code. The Virginians took that and used that as their basis for their slave code in the South. The Nazis took that as their basis for what they did with Jewish people. And then the Europeans in South Africa did establish apartheid. There's a whole thread running through it. And, you know, the interesting thing I read in um, Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, was that some aspects of how it played out in the South were considered too extreme by the Nazis, which is a bit, you know, that is mind-blowing, really. But, you know, I don't think anybody's hands are clean in relation to racism as it operates in the world, anti-Black racism or any other kind of racism. Okay, the difference between the UK and the US is that you're less likely to get shot as a Black person in the UK because people don't carry guns. Uh, It doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. It's a little more subtle and covert in line with the culture of the UK, right? But it still exists. I mean, I lived and worked there for 15 years and I experienced racism quite frequently, right? More in terms of microaggressions than overt hostility. But, you know, there were times, many, many times when people would look at me and make assumptions about me because of the color of my skin. You know, they would see me coming to queue up at the bus stop and they would huddle together and move forward a few inches as if I were planning to mug them. Right. You know, I'm tall. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm five foot ten. I'm broad shouldered. I wear, I have my hair short. When I'm wearing a winter coat, they probably saw me coming, thought young black man, help, you know. And so all of those ideas about anti-blackness, those ideas about othering people, all of those came from Europe. And, you know, yes, how they play out has maybe mutated, but, you know, nobody's hands are clean and nobody has got rid of it. Nobody has got yes. rid of it. It still exists everywhere. That's my perspective. So I'm interested to hear your theories, Rita, on this. So, uh, well, one piece that I wanted to just add is that one of the reasons it's less likely to get shot in the UK is because police officers don't carry guns. Nor do so, For the most extent, right, for the most part, right? Yeah. And so not that it isn't horrible if you beat a person, and mm-hmm. that also happens because of skilled color. So there's still abuse of force, but it's yes, a, a lot actually, less likely to be by gunshot. Yes, actually, there's there have been a lot of cases recently in the UK about strip searching minor children and mm-hmm. the, the way that the system is failing them because they're perceived to be criminal, black children usually, right? Yeah. And so yeah. often they're often treated like adults, worse than adults would be, in fact, who yeah. could advocate for themselves. So, you know, that's not a million miles away from what happens in the U.S. Yes. Okay. Yes, absolutely. So my experience is more, I mean, it's a lived experience as a white person, right? But it's not a lived experience as a person of color. And there's a very heavy academic lens on the way I look at it, because I have a master's in sociology and a PhD in African-American studies. And uh, racism, immigration, and prejudice has been my focus since I was 19. So we're like, I'm, I'm going on just about 30 years now. And my consideration is that because Europe had the world wars on their own soil, there was a coming to Jesus moment of look at where hatred got us. And that coming to Jesus moment in the 50s was met in academia with a we have to radically change something because 
there was some level of recognition that racism had not been prejudice or ignorance, which we still say in America. A lot of people still say that. Oh, well, people just ignorant. No, racism was reinforced by science. Racism is still reinforced by science. I was listening to a piece on NPR yesterday about how there are health screenings that monitor breath that still have corrections by race, because there was apparently a myth according to which Black people needed less oxygen, like had a lower lung capacity, therefore needed to be out in the air more frequently. Like all these justifications we made for enslavement, right, were justified by science. So I think Europe at an academic level had a coming to Jesus moment of we as academicians, we as the intellectual class have perpetuated racism and brought a level of detriment on our own soil that ultimately came to bite us in the butt because our own brothers and fathers and sons have died. And not only have they died once, but with a brief interval of a few years, and then we had to send them to war again, right? So in my view, what happened in the European academia is there was a shift away from the term race altogether. And then there was an, Europe also always perceived Jewish people as a race, right? So when you talk about race in Europe, you're not actually just talking about blackness in the four categories. All the studies I read on race and the construction of race focused on how, you know, the church started ghettos in the 1400s and how the Jews were treated, right? This whole thing about lineage and blood. So so I think the Europeans decided we have to move away from race. And it started embracing ethnicity. Now, because Europe didn't have the civil rights movement that the United States had, and I argue that African American, with no offense to you as being a person from Barbados, my assessment is that African Americans have the most refined analysis of race than any person of African descent around the world. As a collective, right? Not every single person has it, but I think as a collective, as body of work, as what's been read. And you'll correct me on that. I'm open to being corrected. Uh, I'm sure there's plenty I haven't read yet. But I think the civil rights movement came from a very deep analysis of race that African-Americans had been doing for centuries, like going back to slave narratives, right? And trying to be safe by understanding the slave master. And so African-Americans don't just understand like race and racism, but how it permeates institutions and how it permeates the mind and the subtle thinking and the implications and the assumptions and the bias and the unspoken and the body language, right? There's, there's just a really depth of understanding. And to me, what Europeans did is they removed the word without looking at any of that. I want to jump in there go, go. because you're possibly both right and wrong in my opinion on that. In that Caribbean people, I think also have that visceral understanding and and now a body of scholarship, maybe possibly later to interrogating it in the way that many African-American scholars have, but earlier to experience the enslavement, of course, as well. And particularly in places like Barbados, because, you know, in different parts of the Caribbean, you had different ethnicities. You know, you had places that still had um, indigenous populations that were fighting it. You had places where later there were 
you know, sort of imports of indentured servants from different ethnicities, right? So you have places where you have people of Portuguese, Indian, Chinese, etc. heritage. And then you have a place like Barbados, which was thoroughly colonized, partly because of geography, we tend to say, because it's flattish. There are no mountains to hide it, you know, like Jamaica or Trinidad. And so you had the white population and the black population. So Barbadians have a particular awareness and attunement to the nuances of skin color, colorism in particular, right? And what goes along with all of that. And that's sort of baked into the culture. And, you know, we also now have across the Caribbean a number of scholars who are, you know, writing. And, you know, you say that, but um, Eric Williams in the 60s published his book, 60s or 50s, Capitalism and Slavery, which has just been re-released, that had been suppressed in Britain. But, you know, he was a prime minister of Trinidad and an excellent scholar. And so I don't know that it's necessarily true. You know, we're smaller places in the Caribbean. You know, we have a smaller population. Therefore, of uh, you know, because of that, there will be fewer people doing things. But I wouldn't necessarily agree that African-Americans are the most finely attuned to it. I think all post-enslavement societies are attuned to it. Some of them, some of us have started to study it and interrogate it and and, and look at what it means now. Yes, there's absolutely a huge body of work because of the civil rights movement and all that followed it. I'm not disagreeing with you there. And there's a way in which other populations have not reckoned with it in the same way. You know, there's definitely, along with the people that want to interrogate it and say, what did it mean for us then and what does it mean for us today? There are are also people that want to say, oh, that's all in the past. Let's not deal with it at all. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I think it's complex and I'm not sure I can totally agree with you. (laughs) I received that. Yeah. And also as questioning my own thinking, right? And mm-hmm. uh, based on what you're saying, I mean, the Caribbean plays played such an important part in that narrative because the intent of enslaved Africans being sent to the Caribbean first was to break their spirits before yeah. they were moved yeah. to America, right? So that's such an, like, yeah. that intention, which I'm sure permeates more strongly the islands. Yeah. So yeah. to your point, yes, you're right. Yeah. Like, I yeah. don't think I, I probably just inside of my own blind spot and not knowing enough about the Caribbean or capitalism and slavery, the book, right? And the work yeah. um, that I'm sure you're well steeped in. I can see how that was a blind spot for me and how that life experience must have brought a whole other attuning. Yeah. Because yeah. the Caribbean was the bridge. It was, and Barbados in particular was one of the focal points for that, mm-hmm. right? Where the system was refined and exported, right? So I'm not interested in playing oppression Olympics at all. But, you know, I think there also needs to be a recognition that, you know, this happened in multiple places and was equally traumatic for all the people in all those places. And colonialism is still ruling in and a different co- way. Exactly, exactly, exactly. It's still going. It's we're still reckoning with that history and the legacy of that, you know, in terms yeah. of 
relationships between groups of people in terms of the economy, in terms of debt, in you know, in terms of all sorts of ways, in terms of the ways we think about ourselves, in terms of, you know, internalized self-hatred, all sorts of ways. Yeah. And colorism, colorism in post-enslavement societies, you know, in the Caribbean is rife as well. Again, very obvious in Barbados, but also exists in many other places. Yeah, and you wrote a book on that as well, right? So it's another area you've deeply studied. I did. I'm actually I'm in the middle of um, preparing a survey to do an update because I did that research quite a while ago. And it's always interesting to me whenever someone reads the book, they say, but yes, this is my experience today in 2022. I'm still experiencing this. I'm still noticing this. <laughs> you know, it still plays out. You know, there are still places which are bastions of whiteness in most Caribbean countries, right? There's still experiences that tend to be reserved for people that of a certain hue, you know, either based on sometimes it's just it's who shows up, sometimes it's about having money, you know. And, you know, of course, as we know, you know, the ability to build generational wealth tends to favor people who are white, and were not enslaved, whose ancestors were not enslaved. Mm -hmm. I know that's a very broad brush, and I know that there are nuances and complexities within that, but, you know, as an overview. <laughs> and the broad brush still stands. Yes, right? it does. Yeah, absolutely. So this month's theme is uh, trailblazers. Like, I'm curious for you in your personal journey, I listened to some of your podcasts on business writing and promoting yourself as a writer, right? You've done a lot of writing in the corporate world and, and training around writing in corporate world, right? You were blogging about blogging a really long time ago before most people were blogging, right? I'm just curious for you to share a little bit, if you wish, the story of the pivot, right? Like the pivot by of... I live my mainly mainstream life and I have all these experiences, but I kind of keep them private to I'm going to speak out about this overtly and openly, and it's going to be an integral part of my work. And I heard in some of the, I think, newsletter writing your last newsletter, I think it was that you're actually pivoting to like saying, no, this is going to be my income from here on. Like, this is who I am in the world. This is who I am now. As a fellow innovator or trailblazer, I know that it takes a lot of courage to make those decisions. So I'm curious if you'd be willing to share with us like how that choice came for you. That's a really great question, Rita. Let me go back again to the I'm Tired of Racism essay. And I put it out there because I felt it's what I had to do. And I started getting responses. And so I kept writing. <laughs> and I'm not quite sure at what point, at a certain point, it occurred to me that this felt right. This felt like honoring the gift of writing that I had. This felt like it brought together the teaching experience I had with the writing experience. It felt like it brought together everything that I'd done in my life and that I was able to use it in the service of something bigger and more important. It felt like a way to 
fight and help others fight some of those experiences of racism and to help process them as well. You know, the people that read my newsletter fall into several categories. Some of them are Black people like me who feel seen, right? And some of them are people who want to make a difference and want to hear, you know, the stories from people with lived experience of them. And I think once I started writing the newsletter and I realized how important this was to me, I began to realize that I couldn't easily go back to writing about email marketing, right? felt to me like I had found my purpose and having found my purpose, I needed to work in accordance with that purpose. And so I made a decision in late 2020 that I was going to actively seek out work relating to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I've been writing for a long time, as you pointed out. I have written about many, many things. I'm an excellent researcher. I am a former journalist. And so I was fairly confident that I could bring all of that together and write something meaningful and worth reading about diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, social justice, and those topics. And I was lucky enough that someone who ran a UK equity charity asked me to do a summary of what had happened during the year. And so that was my first piece, my first paid piece in this area. And Once I put it out there, you know, the universe supported me, (laughs) you know, and work started coming my way. You know, this, this often happens, I think, when you move in the right direction, right? You get confirmation. And so there was that. What has happened since then is, you know, I've done other things in related to that. I worked with an ed tech startup as, you know, their lead for diversity, equity and belonging. I'm currently working with diverse leaders group as the head of anti-racism. But I think it is important to continue to do my own thing because I think it's important for me, it's important for the people that are interested in it. And so I realized at a certain point that it wouldn't take much for me to be able to focus on the newsletter full-time. You know, a thousand paid subscribers, which, you know, For the number of people that are interested in and committed to anti-racism, it shouldn't be that hard to find a thousand people willing to stump up $10 a month, you know? (laughs) That's what I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. Especially because you're offering a shortcut, which is what a lot of the people in the work want. Yeah. Um, a lot of what you're offering is this is what I'm reading. This is the book worth reading. This is a, these yeah. are a few articles worth reading. These are the people worth following. I would say you're not just offering a newsletter. You're offering five hours of saved time for them because if they want to, like those of us who want to be informed oftentimes don't have the amount of time that we want to do to do for us to do that research. Exactly. So to have it filtered already, it's sort of like, you know, that service where you get uh, all like the news headlines in the morning. Exactly. Like, pay for that. Why can't they pay you for your anti-racist headlines? Exactly. Absolutely. I'm in. Exactly. And, you know, it was also important to me as part of that to make it a platform for other people, not just be my voice. Because uh, further to what we were talking about earlier about, you know, racism being global. And so, and, you know, none of us is a monolith. So my experience as a Black woman of Caribbean ancestry living in the UK is going to be different from the 
experience of a biracial um, African-American man living in the U.S., you know. And so I think there's room for those voices and perspectives. And part of what I'm doing by featuring all these people, in addition to giving them a platform, is saying to the people that subscribe and read, look, here are all these voices. Here are these different experiences. Here's how different people experience this same thing of racism in their own lives. Here, here are the things it's led them to create and to do, you know, follow and support these people. Yeah. Well, do you community. get overwhelmed? Sometimes. Do you get a, sometimes. So sometimes. what's the, what do you do to, for your own self-care to regenerate, to stay on the path? Like, what does that look like for you? Sometimes that looks like taking a break from posting stuff on social media. I, I have a commitment to post twice a week in the newsletter and I, I usually take a, a kind of a break towards the end of the year where I post once a week for a month. And, you know, I am considering making that a twice yearly thing, but generally I post twice a week there. So I, I don't usually cut down on that, but I will cut down on social media posting. Uh, I live in Barbados, so, you know, the beach is my go-to. I'll, you know, head down to the beach at least once a week and just immerse myself in the water. And, you know, there's no better way to de-stress. And then, you know, it's important to do other things to keep yourself balanced, you know, meditation, exercise, you know, proper hydration, all those things that we know about, right? Mm. And sometimes talking to a friend, you know, and sharing those experiences. I, you know, I have a couple of trusted friends that I talk to who get it because they're doing the same kind of work. And so we can be there for each other, you know? So mm -hmm. all of those things help. And I think, it is important for us to look after ourselves in this work so that we can continue to do it. Racism isn't going anywhere in a hurry. And so if we have a purpose and a mission and we want to continue to live out that purpose and mission, we have to take care of ourselves. Very much so. So when I think about the term anti-racism, like I, I listened to one of our past episodes last night and uh, I had forgotten this metaphor that I used. I, I said it's similar. I think there's a quote by Baldwin that says opposition is only half will, right? Like when you oppose something, it's you're only have a half your power, but when you stand for something, your power is much greater. And so um, I have a hard time with the term anti-racism because on one hand, it's like the best term for us to all know what we're talking about. It's the term that's kind of most used now, and it's the quickest, most direct way, right? Like it's between two points, there's only one line, like it's the quickest and most direct line. And I think about anti-racism as a moment of creation. Like I think of it as weeding the garden, um, and then we have to make some choices about what we're going to put in its place. And that, you know, Similar, I'm thinking to the process of therapy. Like at some point in therapy, it just felt like I was pulling everything apart. And then I was like, okay, I need to really invest in some joy here. I need to really invest in something, something that fills me up and grows me up instead of just chopping down. Because otherwise there will be nothing left in my garden if all I'm doing is weeding all the time. Um, I have to plant some things too. So I'm just curious, what would what would you be your take on that? And I'd love to toggle with you a little bit around the term and the importance of it. 
Abraham X. Kendi's quote about being explicitly anti-racist has always resonated with me. So I don't have a problem with the term anti-racism because you can be anti-racism and you, you know, what goes along with that is also being pro-equity, <laughs> right? So you, you put the two things together. You're getting rid of racism and you're also creating a more equitable and equal world, right? And yes. I think the two things go together. So I don't have a problem with, at all with being, I mean, I have an anti-racism newsletter, so clearly I don't have a problem with that term. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know? I think that draws a line in the sand that says, here is what I stand for. I don't like racism. I'm going to fight it everywhere I see it. In the place of that, you know, here's what we can do instead to make it a better world for everyone. And, but I see that as integral to the anti-racism fight. I don't see it as just about tearing something down. I think I see it as putting something better in its place as well. Yeah. I just, I struggle with how do we include that in our language, right? Because then what I personally struggle with is that then I end up with language that's so like if when we're using language that even equity, I feel like is being very bastardized. And then like, it's sort of like the anti because it's used more, it seems like it carries more power. Um, but actually like in our bodies, the standing for something carries more power. And I just wonder how do we infuse that language in our movement building? So that we're conscious, like you said, that as we're working against, we're also working for. I guess it's about how you frame it. It's about knowing what you stand for and not just what you stand against. And that diverse leaders group, we, you know, we talk about creating a more equal world for everyone. So in other words, that's what we're for. One of the building blocks of creating that more equal world is standing against racism. <laughs> I don't think you can get away from it. You know, one of the things that I try to do in much of my newsletter content is not just, you know, I, say, I will talk about an experience or I will talk about something that might be negative. And I, I, then I say, well, okay, here's what you can do. And what you can do might be just be aware. What you might you can do might be, here's how you can interrupt this and help create a safer space for your colleagues. You know, what you can do might, you know, it might be here's, here's a book that you can read to learn more or an article that gives you more information, you know, and then, you know, have conversations and do something with it. I don't want the newsletter to be something where it lands in people's inboxes and they sort of roll their eyes and say, oh, here's another newsletter from Sharon. I want them to take the information and use it to start conversations and, you know, use it as a jumping off point for taking action in some way. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that, and, you know, the anti-racism piece, part of that is part of, you know, being an active anti-racist. And I talked about active allyship and active anti-racist is about taking that information and doing something with it that creates a better space, that creates a better future, that creates the reality that we would like to live in where racism is no longer a thing, or we'd like our children and grandchildren to live in, probably. <laughs> I love the, this conversation because I love how you've woven 
your personal path and your personal thinking with, I have to do something. And then like choosing an avenue to some extent as simple as a newsletter, but extremely well thought out. Like I hear your clear intentions of, I want people to be able to continue to read it. I want people to organize around it, take action, learn more, expand and practice. That's what you're doing. And so of course the invitation to your readers is something that you're leading the way for. So thank you. Thank you for that work. Thank you. Do you have any last thoughts for us? Oh, do I have any last thoughts? I mean, this has been such a wonderful conversation and, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity to articulate that vision explicitly. And my last word on this would be, you know, it takes all of us to see that racism is a problem, to see that lack of equity is a problem and to fight it in whatever ways we can, right? It is better to do something than to do nothing. It is important to accept that sometimes you're going to get it wrong and that should not stop you from getting up and trying again. You know, we have to keep going consistently if we're going to have a better world for everyone. And can you tell us a little bit about your book that's coming out so folks can look it up and, you know, buy it? (laughs) Okay, so right now... Uh, there's a page about it on my website, SharonHH.com. It's called I'm Tired of Racism, True Stories of Living While Black. Or maybe it's True Stories of Existing While Black. <laughs> I should have had that right at my fingertips. And is going to be available soon um, in hardback and on Kindle and other electronic forms. I am I'm currently in the middle of finalizing that. But You should look out for information from me on that on LinkedIn within the next months. And I hope to have the book out by September. My fingers are crossed for you. And my fingers are crossed as well. Thank you. If if I could cross my toes, I would. (laughs) (laughs) And if I could temporarily cross my belly, I would cross that too. Because I know a little bit, I I know a little bit about those birthing pains. Oh my gosh, yes. It's been an absolute pleasure, pleasure to be with you, Sharon. Is I know you gave us your website. Is there any other way people can get in touch with you? Um, antiracismnewsletter.com as well. And of course, you. I'm most active on LinkedIn. So if you're on LinkedIn, feel free to follow me there. My LinkedIn handle is Sharon HH. Great having you, Sharon. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Rita. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.